Good evening, everyone. Uh, it doesn't feel like an evening yet because it's so clear and light. So it's exciting. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not from, from around here, so that's weird for me. Back home, it gets dark after six every day of the year, so I'm not used to that. <laughs> uh, so that is a very long chapter, isn't it? It's a long chapter because actually the, the whole dream is actually told three times. Saying on and on and on. That's why it makes the passage very long. But anyway, uh, we are still continuing our series, the Joseph and the Gospel of the Many Colors. So I know you've been here last week, perhaps, or not. But we are in a chapter, in chapter 41 of the book of Genesis. And the first thing I want to tell you is, what were you doing two years ago? Can you remember? What were you doing like two years ago? Personally, me, I was in the wonderful land of the deepest, darkest Peru. <laughs> My wife doesn't like when I say Peru every time I preach because she's like, you don't know what's going on about Peru. Anyway, <laughs> can't deny that, but I was there. I was getting ready to make the move to Scotland, and I was annoyingly waiting for something called visa to come. And it took like several months, it almost a year. And it wasn't a whole year of waiting and waiting and not knowing what's going to happen. And of course, my life kept going and I kept doing what I was doing. But that process of waiting was so painfully and annoying. We were trying to organize a wedding about, never know with the visa thing. So we have to wait and wait. But that was only for like several months. It was probably six to seven months, if I'm not mistaken. But can you imagine what it feels to wait for more than that. To be waiting perhaps for two years. Two years is a lot of times. A lot of things have happened from, in my life since that. Now we are expecting a baby and things are going great. But it's been a whole long two years. But can you imagine you to be in a situation where you are actually waiting for something for more than a month? For more than two months? For more than three months? Perhaps a year? Perhaps two? This is where we find Joseph. The last thing we heard about Joseph is that he just had interpreted the dreams for those two guys. To one guy, he told good news. To the other guy, bad news. And he told before the Cadvero was released from prison. He said, do not forget about me. Remember who I am and go and tell fear about me. But we are, we are just finding this story that Pharaoh actually didn't do that. We'll see about that in a bit. So while Joseph is in the sideline, he is somewhere in the palace. The king, the guy in power, is having an issue with a dream. He has been in distress because he's got a dream that nobody can interpret. This is not the same dream as Martin Luther King had. This is not that kind of dream that inspired a generation. This is actually a dream that produces chaos and stress. The most powerful man on earth at that moment was distressed. It's so totally distressed because his dream was weird for him. And, and as probably everyone of you know, that dreams generally tend to be very disturbing. One of the things that most of our dreams are normally work and reflection or subconscious. They are produced to us for things going on on our lights. It reflects our desires, it reflects our fears. But in this case, we are actually told 
the Pharaoh's dream was not caused by that at all. We are actually told that this dream was caused by God himself. So, you are those guys who likes outlines. I came, I come out with three main ones for this whole chapter. So from verse 1 and 13, we are going to see that this is a disturbing dream. From verse 14 to 36, we're going to see that this is not only a disturbing dream, but this is a dream that requires a divine interpretation. And also we are going to see from verse 37 to 57 that didn't only require a divine interpretation, but this dream produced a dramatic turn around. These are the things we're going to be seeing today as we go. Let's go on the first one. A disturbing dream. As I said before, this is a different kind of dream. This dream has put Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, on distress. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to spend. He is trying to find somebody to come up with a clue or a solution for it. And this kind of dream puts the most powerful man on earth at the same boat as the two guys we actually saw last week. They were also struggling because of the dream. And Pharaoh in this level, although he's powerful, although he has might and money and everything, he is in the same level as the other two, struggling to know what his dream is about. And we actually say that this dream is a disturbing dream because of two main things. The first one, that this was a dream that no one could interpret. And the first dream we said, Pharaoh saw two groups of seven cows. The first group were sleek and fat. They were healthy, sturdy, and strong. And the strong group, the second group, were ugly and gaunt. I actually learned that word before because the version I know was a different one. I, I was saying before gaunt, but it's not gaunt, it's gaunt. That's what I learned today, St. John. <laughs> Those things you learn, actually. But anyway, and he says that the ugly ones, the ugly cows, ate up and basically ate up the whole seven sleek cows. What was the make of this? Pharaoh still didn't know. But we are told in this story, he went back to sleep. And after that, he started to dream again. And then this time, he dreamed about seven heads of grain, which were healthy and good. But then, they too were swallowed up by the seven heads of grain that were thin and scorched. I've never had those kind of dreams in my life. So, I don't really know what to make of that. But I can imagine, he was... Blown away. He was like, what is going on? Uh, I'm so used to dreaming about anacondas and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's kind of me, but that's not what Pharaoh was dreaming about. And he was like, what is going on with this? What is going to make, what is going to be the make of this? And so what, he, what does Pharaoh? Basically, he calls everyone else, the pagan priests, the magicians and the wise men of Egypt, to see whether they can come and offer an explanation to him. He tells us what his dream is about. Again, the whole story goes again. He tells them. And whether they, they actually come up with an explanation. But we are told in this passage that they couldn't come up with any explanation. They were like, sorry, dude. Sorry, mate. We don't know. <laughs> and in some ways, they represent what pagan religion can actually do. They generally stand for the wisdom in the present world. 
the wisdom that the world is always looking for, but yet they are useless in the moment when it really matters. They don't come up with a solution. They don't come up with anything. That is what pagan religion, that's what like the power of this world can do. When you really need them, don't count on them. They are not there. We are close. Today we are, I was going to say we're going to church, but no, it's just, we're going anywhere. That's kind of what they are. They come and say, we don't, we cannot help you, Pharaoh. We don't hope. We're clueless. Don't got no answer for all these. I'm sorry. That's what they do. And all of this is going to intensify the tension in the story. And it's going to leave room for God, our creator, to get a whole glory. It's only the creator who can actually give meaning and purpose to life and change the curse of sins. There is a good contrast between what the power of the world can actually do and where the power actually resides, which is in God. So, as I said, this is a disturbing dream because no one could interpret it. But it's also a disturbing dream because he produced the right time for the cat to remember Joseph. There is a, in this passage we actually see there is something screaming out of providence from God going on in here. It's at this point that the cat remembers Joseph after two years. At last, right? <laughs> something that similar to these circumstances jog his memory and he is convicted about having forgotten Joseph. Verse 12, verse 12 and 13, this is what he says. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so he came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hung. I won't go in that details because we saw that last week. That's what. But this man is actually remember, and it's not only remembering, but it's telling fear what happened. And it's, he is coming as an eyewitness, saying like, I've been in the same boat as you are. And there was a guy who was able to help me. And I know this guy, it's called Joseph. And you know where this guy is? He is actually in prison. He works as an eyewitness. And in some ways, that eyewitnessing, and somebody he can actually trust, produced Pharaoh the ability to believe, like, yeah. Go and get this guy. And it's a parallel. That is in some ways what the Spirit of God does in us, in our lives. Today, the way God speaks to us is not through dreams, but through the Word of God, which is God's written Word. And it's the Holy Spirit who works in our lives and comes and testifies, eyewitnessing that the Word of God is true and it works in our lives and it can actually be trusted. There's a good similarity in that, how this actually works. The other thing I would like to say about this is the providence is that although the Cadbury remembers Joseph, he actually remembers Joseph in the right time and the perfect moment and the moment when was needed the most and the moment when Pharaoh was needing somebody with the abilities and the gifts and talents or whatever you want to call it. That Joseph, that is the moment when God Make this guy remember about him. Not before his time, nor after his time. That is what providence is about. God does things. God is the one who does things. And the moment he has to do it. No before, no later. Can you imagine a, a different scenario? 
Can you imagine like the cupbearer is out of prison? He's so excited. He goes back and talks to Pharaoh and say, okay, Pharaoh, I know this guy. He's called Joseph. Please come and help him. He helped me out. Could you just release him from prison? Then perhaps Pharaoh would say, yeah, take him out. And then Joseph, the first thing he had to do is just get a camel, just go right away and run from Egypt and go somewhere else. And then the whole scenario is gone. Whenever Pharaoh needed Joseph, he wasn't around. Or perhaps goes the same story, but Pharaoh said, so he did good to you, but he didn't do any good to me. Why do I care? Just keep him there. And whatever this scenario would have been, it may have produced a different outcome. But God needed to take, to use this moment in the right time and in the right circumstances. Pharaoh was in distress. He needed somebody to interpret his dream. Who can we call? Joseph is the man. God put the right time for the right things for the right moment. That is what providence is about. That is for you and I stand for. That we trust that God is the one who holds the future together. God is the one who knows where history is going. And God is the one who is going to do whatever he wants in a time when he wants. That's what we see at first in Joseph. Although it took two years, yeah, but God needed two years for that thing to happen. He was working it out. It was not out of his control. Nothing wrong with that. So that was a disturbing dream that nobody could interpret it. But God's providence made it happen in the right time. But also we see that was not only a disturbing dream, but it was a dream that required the divine interpretation for and we say divine interpretation for, the first thing we say it is because there was no human ability to it. Joseph clearly says, it's not me. One of the things that is very interesting about this passage is that Pharaoh, who was the man of power, the mighty man, when Joseph comes to him, he comes with flattering words. And he tries to flatter Joseph and what he is going to do. He was the most powerful man on earth. He, needed, he didn't have to come in that way. If he was just going to say, Joseph, you just interpret my dream. Joseph had to do it because he was a man in church. But when he comes, when Pharaoh comes to Joseph, this is what he says, 15b, I had heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So flattery, so like, I want to I make you feel like you're good at what you do. And please, the one, the best, come up with this. Please tell me the best interpretation. The best one you can actually find and tell me. He didn't have to do that, but he did it. And what a temptation for Joseph, right? To keep quiet and take all the credit and say, yeah, I, it's actually me. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very good at interpreting dreams. But no, Joseph can't do it. That is not the way he works. Joseph is very strong in his answer. He said, it's not me. He will not take any credit to himself. He is not a magician. He's not a professional dream interpreter. That is not his job. His ability comes totally from God. And he makes it clear. Verse 16, he says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's not me. It is God. It may have been so easy for him at this point to allow Pharaoh to think that he was really so talented 
that he have gifts and everything to do it. But that's not who Joseph was. Could this have been his opportunity? Yes. But Joseph gave credit and glory to God, to the only one who deserved glory. Joseph had, the, Joseph had that clear on his mind. Sometimes I come out saying Jose, but Joseph, but it's Joseph. It's a lot of languages mixed in my head, but it's Joseph, right? <laughs> and we also say that this is a divine interpretation because Joseph also speaks about a God that revealed his plan. Throughout this interpretation, Joseph emphasized that God's central role that God will give Pharaoh that answer that is going to bring peace to Pharaoh. It's going to bring so much peace to him. He says that both dreams and interpretations are from God and are connected with what God is about to do. Joseph tells Pharaoh that the two dreams belong together. The dreams use two symbols to represent the same two things, seven years of abundance and seven years of famine, which would actually devour and benefit all the, all the benefits or the previous good years. Joseph as well stresses that God has been good to Pharaoh to show what he is about to do. Verse 25 and B says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. In some ways there is a clear contrast between the helplessness of the most powerful men of, of, on earth at that moment and actually the great and only one God, the true God who knows what the future is, to knows where sins hold together, to know who knows where history is going. Although Pharaoh is helpless, he doesn't know what to do with his dream. Here we see God, the only one in power, who is telling, who is telling Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. You have power, it is limited. My power. That's no limits. I know where future is holding. There is so much power in the world. Rome power, ISIS, evil, and everything. But all of those fall short when they are compared to the mighty God. And this is actually what we can see in this story. Joseph emphasizes in verse 32b, he says, This sin, this thing has been fixed by God, and God will surely bring it about. Joseph is not only sure that God revealed his plans, but Joseph is fully confident and trust that he will do according what God has said. He has seen God act in this way before. Remember back in the day when we first know about Joseph, the first thing we know about him is that he was loved by his father. But then he had two dreams as well. Do you remember? He had two different, I won't go that far, but he had, he had seen this pattern before. He had seen like God delivered a message through dreams before. And now he's seen in Pharaoh. He's sure that God will do. God will make things happen because he has faith in that. He is still waiting that God will do this. And he's going to make this happen. That's actually described in Genesis chapter 37. The two dreams decided by God that hasn't happened yet. It's still to come. 
but it will come to happen. So we have seen that this is a dramatic dream. Uh, it's a disturbing dream. We have seen that is, this is a dream that requires a divine interpretation. But also, this was a dream that produced a dramatic turnaround. God's sovereignty doesn't negate human responsibility. So Pharaoh has been revealed through Joseph what God is going to do. Now Pharaoh has to do something with this knowledge. The plans of Joseph outlined is to organize a way of storing grains during the good years. So that when the famine comes, there is more than enough set aside to feed the people during those years. And the first thing we actually see in this dramatic turnaround is that happens with Joseph. He's taken in one moment from the pit to the palace. In one instance, he were just back there where the prisoners are. And in another instance, he's just there meeting with the king, with Pharaoh. And one of the things interesting to see here is that, verse 38, that Pharaoh acknowledges that the Spirit of God is raised on Joseph. Perhaps Pharaoh didn't get this the way we do, but he wasn't sure when he said this. Verse 38, he's asking, Can we find a man like this? And who is the Spirit, whom the Spirit of God is? What is pagan, what is pagan monarch is recognizing and is acknowledging is that the power of God isn't within this man. And he's actually able to see it. And he discovers and he, he realizes that this is not normal. There must be something with God with this man. This is what Pharaoh said, 39, 14. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard the throne will I be greater than you. This is such an amazing turnaround that we see in this passage. Joseph was in jail in the morning, and by the evening he is just standing there beside Pharaoh as his second in command. All the things are falling together. This is part of the providence from God. God is the one moving and orchestrating this. God is the one making all of this to happen. The second thing we can see, this is a dramatic turnaround, is that Joseph gets so exalted, but at the same time, he yet still is humble. He is given a new name. It's, his name is kind of hard to pronounce, but I'll do my best. Sephanat Pania. Nobody speaks Hebrew here, does it? It's good. Sephanat Pania, which means God has spoken and he leaps. Can you imagine? You go to a pagan nation, and they're going to give you a new name. And the name they decide to give you it speaks about you, God. It's fascinating. Because the meaning of that name means God has spoken and he lives. He speaks and lives. The name itself is a testimony of Joseph's God. How great is Joseph's guy was. That even the most powerful man on earth, when he's going to name it, he's going to name it according to what his God shows and represents. It's fantastic. Also, Joseph finds himself married to an Egyptian wife. He gets an Egyptian name, and he also gets an Egyptian wife. 
He's married into one of the most powerful families in the world, in all Egypt. In some ways, he didn't have any choice in this regard. The wife came with the job. It kind of sounds awful, doesn't it? But he was fine with that. I don't know. Have you ever had a work where actually your job, your, the wife came with your job? I don't think anyone is very familiar with it. But in some ways, that's what happened with Joseph. And he was fine with that. And we'll see why. Joseph is now very well connected. This was a great opportunity, but also, in so many times, could be a great temptation. The question would be, will he become now Egyptianized? He's now given influence, he's now given power, he's now into the most, one of the most admirable and respectable and powerful families in all Egypt. He's the second in command, he has everything, he has his life figured out, everything is going great. Is he going to deny his fate? Is he going to become Egyptianized? I don't know if that word exists, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Is he going to give up his faith? We actually learn no. But this is a very nice article I found the other day in Christianity Today a magazine. This is what it says. The truth is that as Christians, we still buckle under the weight of the temptation to love the things of this world. No sooner do we start to earn a bit more and begin to mix with the influential of the rich and famous then suddenly we lose our age. That's very common nowadays in Christians, that whenever you become to be more popular, you become to have more influence or power, according to this post, it says like, our faith stumbles. And we are actually wondering, is that what's going to happen with Joseph? Perhaps no. And we are actually told that that's not what happened with Joseph. Joseph came to Egypt when he was 17. And he's now 30. He still remembers where he came from. He also has children. And this is the funny thing. The name he gives to his children are a reflection of who he is. He is now connected to a very strong family, a powerful one, but it's still a pagan one. He is married to a woman who doesn't believe in God. He is surrounded by people who don't actually trust God at all. But yet, when he has to come up with a name for his children, actually, names for children are so important. That's why my wife and I are discussing for several hours every week about what the name is going to be like. But for him, he didn't forget. For him, the name was like, it has to be a name, a reflection of who my God is. And that is the way he actually names his children. The, the names he gives to his children are a testimony of his faith. 51 says, God has made me forget my troubles. And God has made me fruitful. That is who God is. Egypt is bringing all the pressure over me. But I'm standing on my faith. I won't give up to power. I won't give up to influences. I won't be give up to riches. You know, the riches of this world. That is not who I am. This is who I am. And everything I do, God is present. And that is what Joseph makes it clear. And he said, God is the one who has made me fruitful. God is the one who is here. What an amazing story that we see in Joseph. Joseph was a man aware of God's providence in his life. This described his faith and that he was living for God. Even in his later days, we know 
that he gave out instructions about his burial. We'll see that later on. But the instructions was that he wanted his bones to be buried back in, in Israel whenever he goes. Actually, the writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 11.22 By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus to all the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. This was a man who hasn't forgotten where he, come, where he comes from, who hasn't forgotten who his God is. Doesn't matter what you bring him to him. Whether it's prison, whether it's slavery, whether it's whatever it is, he wouldn't forget who his God is. He's standing for his God, living up for him. Joseph was in Egypt, but he was not an Egyptian. In Egypt, but he was not an Egyptian. He did lose his identity as one of God's people. He was perhaps the only. He was perhaps the only believer in that place. He was the only one who trusted in God in Egypt at that point. But he wouldn't give up. He was standing strong. I stay strong. I seek out with Jesus, as John was saying this morning. I seek out with God. This is who I am. Yeah, I'm the only one who believes in God in my family. I've been sticking up. Yes, I'm the only one who believes in God in my work. I've been sticking up. Yes, I'm the only one who believes in God in my community. I've been sticking up. I'm not giving up, says Joseph. Doesn't matter what the circumstances are. I'm not giving up. The last thing we can see about this passage is that it produces a dramatic turnaround that produces a godly servanthood. The last thing we see about Joseph is that he not only believed in God, but he was perhaps the only one in Egypt who believed in God. And in some ways, he was Joseph against the world. And he tried to serve his master well enough so that he could become a good witness for his master. Joseph served God in the course of Pharaoh with the same devotion as he served God when he was in slavery in prison. So many times that is very difficult for us. Because so many times we want to be pleased with God whenever we are experiencing comfort. But whenever the circumstances raise and then circumstances are difficult, we sometimes begin to tumble. We don't know what to do. But Joseph is not like that. Joseph said, I don't know what my circumstances are. Are you sticking in? Continue strong. At the end, all of this will result in him being exalted to a position where he can be a good blessing to everyone. Many people from all over the countries are going to come to him to find help in a time of famine. He would be the one used by God in order to bring food to the people whenever they were struggling. That is where God actually placed him. One of the things that's very amazing in Joseph's life is that we can actually see Joseph's faithfulness all throughout the beginning of his story till actually the very end. And we see how great this guy, this character, this person, this believer was. But one of the most astonishing things to see as well is God's faithfulness with him. 
God was with him when he, when Joseph wrote his dad and his brothers. God was with him when he was sold into slavery. God was with him when he was sent to the pits from Potiphar. God is now with him when he is exalted to a position where he can actually bless everyone. That is God. Joseph was sticking out with him, but God was there with him as well. He would not abandon him. God was faithful. And in some ways, so Joseph was. And in some ways, that was the summary of the whole chapter. Whether how it was clear or not, that's a question we'll probably find out in the next week or so. But I want to finish with giving some applications to this. And perhaps you weren't paying attention before. I want you to really, really pay attention now. Because this is perhaps the most important part of the sermon. This is the challenge for us. And the question is like, what can we learn from Joseph and apply it to our lives today? In 2015, Edinburgh. What can we learn from him? Perhaps the first thing we can learn from Joseph is that whatever your circumstances are, God's in control. And he will do his plan and purpose in our lives in the perfect time. Not before or not after. In the right time when things have to happen, there is where God acts. Because that's who he is. This is a doctrine of providence of God. It is a source of the most enormous comfort for all believers to know that God rules in the world. And that he knows where history is heading. That's fascinating. The second thing we can, say, we can learn from this is that we need to be a contraculture. We need to change the way this culture goes. In the culture we live nowadays, we, lie, we love giving praise to men. We love saying how great man is. We love saying how great Cameron is. We love saying how great, uh, what is this guy, uh, Ed Miliband is. We love saying how great such and such, such a person is. Probably not, right? That was not, that was not a right joke, anyway. <laughs> but we love giving glory to men. But what we learn here from, from Joseph, it's like, no. He is like, no, man, it's not. I won't give the glory to men. It's not me, he says. It's God. The only one, the only one who's capable of getting all my glory is Him. I will give glory to Him. It's God the one who should receive the glory. That is what churches are meant to be. Giving glory to God must be the reason of our living. Acknowledging that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is because of Him should be the reason of our lives. As it's written, in God we live, in God we move, and in God we have our beings. Great story from Joseph, isn't it? That's the one and two. We got a three, a number three as well. This is very important for all of us. Today we are surrounded by a very ungodly culture. Almost 99% of our bosses. How many of you have bosses here? How many of you got bosses? All right. It's always my boss is a Christian, so that doesn't apply to me. But anyway, uh, but almost 99% of our bosses, they are non-believers. People who don't agree what we do, do don't want to, do want to have anything with God. But here we see in Joseph, he, shows, he gives us an example how a Christian should be dealing with ungodly people. He served his master in the best possible way. He wanted to be the best witness for him to the gospel. 
whatever Pharaoh would see to Joseph, he would see God working in his life. That is what Joseph was doing. That is a challenge we can get from Joseph. I don't know what your relationship with your bosses are. But it would be great for your bosses to see Christ in you. It would be great for when your bosses make a judgment among you. They say, that is a different person. That is this. It's, can you find somebody like this guy? Yes. Because the Spirit of God is in him. There is a challenge from Joseph. Serve our, our pagan masters. Serve our pagan bosses the best possible way. So that somehow, for them the gospel could be clear and reflecting. And they might become attracted to it. And they might come to Jesus. It's a great challenge, isn't it? It's a fantastic challenge. And we see all the way from Joseph. And lastly, this is a series called Joseph in the Gospel of Many Colors. It wouldn't be called the Gospel if I don't talk about Jesus, right? And that was perhaps my last point of the application, talking about Jesus. We had seen that Joseph often appears to have the same career as Jesus, similar, similar career to him. We have seen Joseph, he was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Our master Jesus was sold for 30. We see now that at the age of 30, he's beginning his work as a prime minister. Our Lord began, he becomes his public ministry when he was 30 as well. Uh, here in Joseph's exaltation, we see a glimpse of the success in the companies that Jesus' exaltation took his father's throne. From that throne, he dispenses blessings to the world and he gives them blessings on salvation. We see this that in theology we call the parabola of, I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, but the parabola of exaltation, humiliation, exaltation of Christ. So, it's pretty obvious in the passage, but this is kind of what we see in Joseph. Joseph begins, his, the first we know about Joseph is he is here experiencing the love of his father. And he is in a good place. But then he is sold into slavery. And then he's sold into slavery. And he's going down and down. And then he goes to Potiphar's. And then he is mistreated then. And then he's sent to the pits. And he's in his loudest most in the lowest place of his life. And after that, out of the blue, he's exalted in the next day to the throne as a prime minister. Oh, surprise. Here we have Jesus with God in heaven, loving humanity with only he can do. Saying, I want to go and give my life for them. Coming to a in the incarnation, living a life as a human, 100% human, 100% divine, going all the way to the cross, death on the cross, his lowest point. But there from the cross, we actually see the same pattern. From the cross, God, our God, our faithful God, exalted him to the throne of his father. The throne he has prepared for him. That is the parable of the exaltation we see in Joseph. The Apostle Paul, who saw it as well, he sees this and he goes beyond that and he says, that is not only a parable for us to see it, that is an example for us to live in that way. This is what the Apostle Paul says. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 11. I finish with this. This is what he says. This is Apostle Paul speaking to us. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his son advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human likeness, and being found in appearance, in appearance as men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this is what Paul says, Therefore, Paul calling us and saying, Listen to this, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place on earth and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul finishes this whole idea of exaltation, the parable of exaltation, saying that is an example for us. We should be like that. Jesus used to say a lot, and the, the first will be last, and the last will be first. We see this pattern of Serbacon all the way in with Joseph. He was trusting God's providence, but he was not only waiting for things to come, he was still serving, and serving in the most possible way so that God could give, to give, receive the glory in everything he did. Why don't we pray? Father, as we see the example in Joseph, that is actually a foreshadowing example of that what Jesus would do several years later on the cross in his whole life. Let us live in that way. Let us live every day in our lives giving you glory in everything we do. Let us not take away the glory that belongs to you. Let us trust in your providence and let us trust that you are in control and you, may, you will make all the things possible and you will make all the things that has to happen in the right time. But while we're waiting, Lord, let us know we're weary. But let us continue in serving one another. Having the same example as Paul said that Jesus did for us. Help us to serve everyone around here and especially outside the church. To serve them in the best possible way so that the gospel could be shown to them. Whenever our neighbors and everybody else sees us around, they can actually see Christ. And that we are witnessing to them. Father, we trust that these are words that won't come out from empty ears. But we'll be obedient. And we'll do according to what we hear. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for each, every one of us. Let us continue this time of gathering together. In the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.